Fired up, and off we are. June the 21st, 2015, lecture discussion number uh, 201 on the Book of Romans, asking at the beginning, as we should, always the appropriate question to raise here at beautiful downtown Cliffside Community Chapel, where are we now? And uh, what we're doing, essentially, is comparing uh, Noah and Lot. i got to turn, turn the magic... Amazing, reversible, holy dry erase board. So there we go. Noah and Lot. That's what we're doing at the basic level. We're comparing the two of them. Putting them side by side. And... um, and that's, again, that's appropriate to do because the Lord God Almighty himself, Jesus Christ himself, places Noah and Lot side by side at Luke 17, 27 through 30. He could have used anyone for the example, but uh, that's not true either. Being an omniscient God, he picks the two that are the most relevant to this topic that he's in in 17 chapter of Luke 27 through 30 specifically. So we need to pay, pay attention to this joining of placing side by side of Noah and Lot. And we went about that last Sunday, lecture number 200, for those of you who keep score. We made a list that's on the other side of the rotating amazing dry erase board. And beginning that process, or the process of attempting to fully understand what God is saying to us, what Christ is saying to us in Luke 17, 20 through 37, which you know. And those are the words of Christ that were spoken to the Pharisees. So I have these words given to the Pharisees, and then I have subsequent to those words to the Pharisees, the words of Christ that were spoken to his disciples. So I have two sections, if you wish to think of it that way. And all of that is immediately subsequent to Jesus healing the ten lepers. So that's our context. Heal the ten lepers, one comes back, Pharisees come, I talk, he talks to the Pharisees, he sets uh, that uh, in motion, and then he begins to speak to his disciples. So that uh, is a, a synopsis of where we have been. And thus... We, as per usual, once again, we plowed forward into the passage where we eventually crashed into Luke 17:32, and that is where God commands his disciples to remember Lot's wife. That is a direct order, remember Lot's wife. And as expected, we stopped right there, or we seemingly stopped. We're actually moving. It's just hard to tell that we're moving. Casual observer will not notice that we're moving. It's only you highly trained professional people here who have to drive stakes in the ground and go by the sun and see how far we're moving. But we are moving. There is some movement. And you may recall that uh, you knew full, you were fully aware, I told you, I warned you that we're going to have a collision with Luke 17:32. Remember Lot's wife. I said, hey, this is going to stop us, and that's going to be coming, and that was the purpose from the very start. That's what I wanted to do, was run into this. Remember Lot's wife is not just mysterious, enigmatic saying of Christ. It is a direct order as well. So I have a mystery that, I, that is not easy to understand. I'll be the first to tell you it's not. Uh, but it's, we are told to do it. God has a habit of doing that. Get used to that. He wants us to investigate what he says. People ask me all the time, why is it so hard? It's supposed to be hard. That is for your sake. That is for my sake. There's some on the surface, but there are some that you have got to work to find. And he orders us to do it, and this is one of those. So, knowing this to be the case, we're now exactly where we thought we would be. Uh, we are where we thought we'd, we'd be. We're stuck, sort of, and that's good. And all of this pro- because Lot's wife has something that provides clarity to the sign of the taken bride. Let me repeat that. I have told you for weeks now, I've been calling the rapture the sign of the taken bride, because that is what I think is happening. I think that is a sign. Now, who is it a sign for? I haven't given that to you specifically. I'm 
But you, most of you have figured that out, and that's a good thing for you to do as well. But Lot's wife is interwoven into the sign of the taken bride, the rapture if you prefer, and that is precisely why she is placed at Luke 17.32. She's put right in that spot by God himself. So you have this order of that particular passage, the sign of the day of Noah or the days of Noah, the sign of the day of Lot or the days of Lot, and the sign of Lot's wife. And because... uh, Once Luke 17 is placed alongside of Matthew 24, it becomes clear what Christ is doing, in my view. Christ is inserting intentionally, purposely inserting and utilizing Noah, Lot, and Lot's wife to answer questions. Those questions that were asked of him by his disciples. What kind of questions did his disciples ask him? They asked him end times questions. Things that were going to happen in the future. And Lot's wife, therefore, answers an end times question. That's why she's there. And it's therefore for us to connect the correct question to remember Lot's wife. Because she's an answer. How many questions does his disciples ask him that he answers? Do you remember? Three. Three questions. Remembers Lot's wife. Something about Lot's wife answers one of those three questions. And that's what we began to do last week. Now, backing up just a minute. Um, Okay, for a few minutes. This is a good time to revisit the symmetry of Noah and Lot. That's a subject. It's very interesting. Uh, my sister has to move in with us, those of you who keep track of my poor decision-making in regard to contracting. Uh, we have finally finished my mother's house, and it's now awaiting the legal issues that always accompany an estate sale. And so in the interim period, Susie, who will remain nameless, uh, is moving in with us, um, mostly because there isn't any place for her to go, and, and it's the only thing we can do. And, and it'll be an interesting time. So we have all of her stuff now in our living room, piled high, five or six feet deep. Lori weeps continually now. There's never a minute where she's not weeping, throwing herself onto the ground, kicking and screaming. That's what we have. That's our condition. So my stuff was moved out of what was once the office, but has been a storage area with tubs of papers in them, all yellow tablets. That is moved out onto the table. There's a little a little uh, table that we've stolen from Christopher and Amanda, who shall be remain nameless as well. Um, and I put my feet on it. But now it's covered with these tubs of yellow paper, which you know is my lectures. I write on yellow and white paper over the years. I thought, well, I'll open it. And there on top, uh, seven, eight years ago, was the subject of the cemetery of Noah and Lot. and made me laugh. So I thought I'd like to see what this guy thought. I wonder if he got anything right. And of course, all I did back then is I just introduced it. So now I'm finishing... Noah and Lot, not, uh, not really. It only took me eight years to get back to the subject. That's hilarious. I think you don't. But anyway, you might remember our discussion a while ago on the congruity of Adam and Noah. And that, that's a subject that Bible scholars have written exhaustively on, but not so much with Noah and Lot. You don't see a lot of Noah and Lot exposition. Though Noah and Lot are specifically conjoined, as I said, by the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ himself. He says Noah, Lot, puts them right there together. And you would think that somebody, in fact, would have been motivated to investigate that. But those types of uh, things are very rare. I can't find very many, if any. And this all begins in Genesis 13.10. Let me put that on the board for you. So those of you who are writing along. If you go to 13.10, you see the beginning of the Noah Lot implications. That's a verse that's missed a lot. 
a lot that's a joke. It's missed a lot with respect a lot, but you cannot miss it when you're searching for the meanings that are in Luke 17. So let me read it to you. Genesis 13:10. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all of the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. Now that's before God destroyed it. Okay? So let me repeat it. Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. So when Abraham and Lot were separating, Lot saw the plain of Jordan, Sodom, and said, Wow, that is exactly like the garden of the Lord. I want you to consider what that might mean. Lot sees Sodom as equivalent to where? The garden of Eden. He sees where Sodom was before it was destroyed by God and says, that is just like the Garden of Eden. Now, if we wish to be thorough and observative, we're now studying the correspondence between Lot and who else? If Noah equals Lot, and Lot sees Sodom as Eden, And we're now looking at Noah, Lot, and Adam by just simple basic mathematic transitive property, right? Noah and Adam have significant similarities, and Noah and Lot are yoked by Christ himself. It's logically required Lot and Adam to reveal a sameness. So the beginning of that sameness of Lot and Adam is in Genesis 13.10, where Lot thinks he's going where? Into the Garden of Eden. He saw Sodom as Edom. Now, Sodom, therefore, was clearly a beautiful, spectacular, extraordinary area and city. It had to be amazing to have that equivalency to Eden. We have no idea what Eden was like. Would, would Lot have a much better idea of what Eden was like than us? Absolutely. Who would have seen it? Noah. And of course, as you know, Noah was alive when Abraham was alive. So it's very possible that Lot could have spoken to to Noah about Eden. Now again, Eden was protected by the cherubim and the flaming sword and all of that, right? But I have this beautiful, spectacular area that Lot recognizes as similar to Eden. And therefore, it's full of food. It's people that they don't need to toil at all. They don't need to work at all. Ezekiel 16:49 through 50 tells us that great pride the people of Sodom had in what they had accomplished. Now that leads you to the obvious questions, right? To the next question: What did they accomplish there, and how did they do it? They had accomplished something that they were extraordinarily proud of. What was it? How did how did they do? It? Sodom had traveled well down the path. You've heard me say this many times. It was in that lecture years ago, and I was proud of myself for a brief moment until I read the rest of it. Anyway, Sodom had traveled well down the path of defeating the curse of Genesis 3, 17 through 19. That's what they had done. They had lacked nothing. They had all the food they needed, and they had begun to defeat the last portion, which was the curse of death. It didn't work. They had their food. They had tremendous idleness. Ezekiel 16 again. But they were uh, on their, well on their way to defeating the curse uh, of physical death. And that uh, uh, meant that they were extending their own physical life. Again, that takes us back to how were they doing it. God describes their methods. He calls the, the city of Sodom exceedingly wicked. It is exceedingly wicked. There is no wickedness to compare to it. So however it was that they had defeated the curse, their methods were extraordinarily evil. An unimaginable evil was the condition of Sodom in their pursuit of physical life. That's how God describes it. And by the way, the Bible says as it was in the time of Noah. 
as he was in the time of Lot, right? So consider what they mean by that or what is meant by that. So one could rightly say that if I am in Sodom and I have defeated everything but physical life, but I have extended my phys- or physical death, excuse me, but uh, if I had defeated all of that to at least some level, I haven't completely done it, but I'm close. So they are not fearful of physical death. They are in the process of overcoming that part of the curse. Again, how? But if I concede that premise, could not one rightly say then of Sodom that it had in its midst a tree of life? Again, here I'm going, connecting Lot to Adam. The Sodomites I'm presenting to you, or I'm submitting to you, that there's a tree of life of sorts there. They had a counterfeit tree of life, if you wish to think of it that way. They had a method of extending their lives. It was an exceedingly wicked method, and that was their counterfeit tree, if you will. And that is how we start Lot and Adam. Each one was in Eden. There is a, there is a relationship, though a contrast, each of Sodom and Eden. Each one had a tree of life. Each one, Adam and Lot, uh, was eventually in a position where a decision with respect to that tree of life that they were uh, in the presence of had to be contr- uh, had to be confronted. Excuse me. More medicine. Let me repeat it. I have two men, Lot and Adam. Both of them are confronting essentially a decision that the tree of life is uh, causing. You've heard my lectures, I'm sure, on uh, Adam's confrontation with that particular decision. And that's a very interesting subject. Noah, Lot, and Adam. And we'll be investigating it as the weeks go on. But that's not where we are. Today, we're, we're on Noah and Lot, not Lot and Adam. But I just wanted to bring it to you, your attention so that you can begin getting ahead. Let's just talk about Noah and Lot now really quickly. Noah. Drunk in a tent, right? Lot, drunk in a cave. While drunk, Noah experiences an event that results in Noah cursing his grandson. Very complicated occurrence in that tent that we can only begin to imagine. While drunk, Lot experiences an event. And I'm going to tell you that the components relate directly to Noah's. They're similar but different. Dramatically different, but nonetheless similar. Does that make sense? Both Noah and Lot are saved. Noah was saved from water. Lot was saved from fire. Both Noah and Lot now face repopulation. Noah legitimately. Lot through his daughters and their mistaken assessment. Noah had a window. Now, if you study the Hebrew commentators, and, and they're, they're wrong a great deal of the time, so don't go overboard with that. But there is one position that says the window in the ark uh, was actually just more of a, of a really thick gem type thing. In other words, it, it didn't have any clarity. It, it was very clouded. And that only allowed him to look upward, upward, light from above, if you will, was all that was allowed for Noah while he's in the ark, even though it was openable, obviously, in some way, at uh, some point. But while it was closed... Uh, apparently, it, it was not. There wasn't a great deal of clarity. That's the position. I don't know if that's true, but that would make some sense. So that's why I'm bringing it to you. So Noah had a window that he really couldn't look through, but he could look upward. Lot was told, "What? Don't look. No looking." Obviously, this is something that bears much further analysis. What is this looking actually representing? with respect to Noah and Lot. And why this prohibition? It appears on the surface that Noah and Lot are not going to be allowed to see the destruction of those who are around them, the unsaved. Why? And if that's the case, 
Why is that the case? Is there more to this? Of course there's more to this. Lot is told to flee to the mountains lest he be swept away. You're going to see destroyed in a lot of your Bibles. The words are more correctly uh, swept away. Swept away is very uh, noatic in its context. Anyway, in order to correctly interpret the meaning of Lot's wife, or remember Lot's wife, in order to correctly interpret that phrase, we will first need to make some substantial progress on the relationship between Noah and Lot, and therefore Noah and Lot and Adam. And we'll need to know why Christ himself, God himself, put Noah and Lot side by side together at Luke 17, 26 through 32. That's the plan. And to that end, our next destination is obvious. It has the pieces that we need to know. And that, of course, is Matthew 24, 23 through 44. So we're going to be going back and forth between Matthew 24. Oops, I put that over the microphone. I can't do that. I have to reorganize my entire system now. We're going to go back and forth between uh, Matthew 24, 23 through 44 and Luke 17, 26 through 32. And you're going to, I hope, recognize the great similarities that are there and why they are there. So we're finally at the point where we can make some decisions today as to the meaning of remember Lot's wife. Uh, Matthew 24, 23 through 44, once reconciled with Luke 17, 26 through 32, is going to provide a lot of clarity that is so often missed. So I, I, uh, I'm both confident and worried. I'm confident that you'll see it, but I'm worried you won't. It's very important to you. I have in past lectures, I've used this analogy of templates, overlaying one passage to another. And then once you put one template on top of the other template, something emerges. But you have to have both pieces. It's almost like blending two pictures together. Once you get the two pictures together, you see what is... Uh, what was heretofore hidden in the image, the totality of both of the templates, if you want to think of it that way, reveal the truth, the singular truth. And that is what's happening here at Matthew 24 and Luke 17. So we're going to put both of those templates together a little bit today, not completely, but I think enough to get you going, and next week we'll finish it up. But both templates have to be together, and then they have to be placed together exactly right, and then that way, then that way that's the only way, my view, that we will be able to see what is meant by Christ. Okay, I need to remind everyone again, how many questions did he get asked? He got asked three. He got the three questions of Matthew 24, 3. Done Matthew 24, 3 a lot. His disciples, let me read it here. When Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple, and Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Okay, that freaked them out. What did he just tell them was going to happen to the Jerusalem temple? It's going to be completely destroyed. So, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. They are not happy about what he previously said. And they asked three questions. Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age. Three questions. Matthew 24, 3. Essentially, when will Jerusalem temple be destroyed? When will Jerusalem be destroyed? Because there's no possibility the temple can be destroyed without what? The whole city being destroyed. So when will that happen? And then they ask him the second question. That's the first question. Question number one. When will the city of Jerusalem and the temple of Jerusalem be destroyed? but specifically the, the temple. Question number two, when will you return as king? When are you coming back as king to save your nation of Israel? When are you coming back to save the Jews? And the third question was, when will the age of the Gentiles finally be over? So those are your three questions. 
You need them repeated. When will the temple be destroyed? When are you coming as king? When will the age of the Gentiles be over? More specifically, they're asking, what is the predominant sign that the age of the Gentiles is fine? When are we going to see some hope that this is over? By the way, we're doing the same thing, aren't we? We're doing it now. I'm doing it now. Every day I read the paper. I watch the, the news accounts. When is the predominant sign that the age of the Gentiles is ending? I happen to know the predominant sign of the, age of the, end, of the end of the age of the Gentiles. And now I'm looking for the non-predominant signs. I have a whole bunch of them that I'm watching for, right? As you know. And hopefully everyone here is aware that Christ answers the disciples. He answers these three questions, but he answers them out of order. Now it's, I know you all know that, but the people that come with us now, that join week to week, uh, they don't know. And it's very important to know that there are three questions and that Christ, God, answers them out of order. Um, if you don't know that, you get in a lot of trouble. God says to them, he answers the age of the Gentile question first. It's the first one he answers. He answers the third question first. And he says to them, the end of the sign of the age of the Gentiles, as you study Luke and you read the rest of this and do it on your own time today, we don't have time, but the, the predominant sign of the end of the age of the Gentiles is world war. The whole history of man, we have had little fights, if you will. You want to think of them that way, some of them pretty significant. But we had not had world war. So he wasn't telling them regional conflicts is a sign. It's not. He was saying worldwide total war. That is the predominant sign that the end of the age of the Gentiles is coming to an end. That occurred. Worldwide war, total war, occurred 1914 to 1945. And we'll call that World War I, World War II. Most historians do not. They see it as one world war, just with a brief intermission. So we have had a world war. That is the predominant sign that the end of the age of the Gentiles is over. Now, what happened at the end of, the, of World War II? Almost immediately, 1948, I had what? I had a Jewish state. Extraordinary. That's why the people of that time said, okay, it's over. The end of the age of the Gentiles is over. Now, next week we'll get into the fig tree and what, how long is a generation? How long is a generation? Now, lots of people do this lecture and I'm going to do it different, I promise you. Are you shocked by that? Everybody's laughing, for those of you on the Internet. How long is a generation? The only place in the Bible where a generation is definitively measured is 100 years. Know that going in. You're going to have to fight the 100-year people. Now, of course, it's also 80, also 70, also 40. People make the case for 30. Those are strong cases. So we're going to have a whole bunch of choices, and everyone will get a calculator that says Cliffside Community Chapel. Calculators necessary. Fines if you do not have your calculator with you. I'm only half kidding about Cliffside Community Chapel calculator. I would want one. You'd have to be able to do stairs, handrails. I'm pretty good at that, but it takes me a long time to do the math and draw all the pictures. Anyway, where am I at now? Jesus answers, look, when you see world war, you're, gonna, you're about to see the end of the age of the Gentiles. And then he goes to the first question. That was the third question first. Now he's going to go to the first question second. The sign of the destruction of, of the Jerusalem temple. The disciples wanted to know when Jerusalem would fall and when the temple would be uh, destroyed specifically so they could do what? What did they want to do? What would you want to do? If I came to you and said, okay, see the city of Anchorage. I tell you, the whole city of Anchorage, gone. You come to me and say, when that going to happen? I'm going to need, uh, you know, my old joke. All you need in life is fast horse and a 20-minute head start, right? That's what I want. That's what I'm after. So I'd go, okay. How, when do I have to get out of here? 
So he answers that question because they wanted to flee to the mountains, Matthew 24, 16. Fleeing to the mountains is what? Who flees to the mountains? Who flees to the mountains, Genesis 19, 17. That's a Genesis 19, 17 reference. Every time you see flee to the mountains, you should go to Genesis 19, 17. Who's doing the fleeing in 1917? Lot. Lot's wife. So immediately now, I'm into the second question, aren't I? Because we're wanting to flee to the mountains. Lot and Lot's wife in Genesis 1917 were told to flee to the mountains, as you know. And I have intentionally, by the way, combined 66 A.D. fall of Jerusalem with the end of the tribulation attack on Jerusalem. Because there's two things to consider there. What I mean by that is that there are uh, two surroundings of Jerusalem, if you want to think of it that way. The Roman army, Titus, 66 to 70 A.D., surrounded Jerusalem, tore it to pieces, destroyed the temple. That was the first one. The second one is when? The second one is when the Antichrist, his siege of Jerusalem near the end of the tribulational seven-year period. I have two of these, and I have combined them together. Um, We'll work that out next week, but just know that. So I have the sign that the Antichrist, Satan, intends to exterminate the Jews. That's Daniel's abomination of desolation sign, and Jews are told to flee to the mountains when you see that sign. I also have the surrounding of Jerusalem by the Roman army in 66 to 70 A.D., and the Jews were told to flee to the mountains when you see the Roman army come. Does that make any sense to anybody? Just know there's two of them there. And what does the New Testament do? It mixes the two together. You have to be able to figure out what is referencing what. The point being is when the Jews see these events, the Jews that are in that position, they flee to the mountains. When the disciples saw the Roman army surround Jerusalem, they fled to the mountains. Just like Lot, flee to the mountains. Lot and Lot's wife fled to the mountains. And that may be confusing today, but next week, not so much. You'll get it. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. I'll watch my time. Where was I? Oh, okay. Here we go. Jesus answers now. He's answered the first question second. Time of the destruction of Jerusalem will be when the Roman army laid siege, 66 A.D., and he says, don't stay in Jerusalem, run and hide in the mountains when you see that happening. Now, a lot of them did what? They ran to the mountains before the city was surrounded. Now they're out in the mountains. And what do they want to do? They didn't like the mountains much. They missed their cable TV. And this, yeah, it's cold up there for sure. This is the context, so you know, of Hebrews 6. When you get to Hebrews 6, the very difficult passages there that are always misunderstood, especially by the people that teach you you can lose your salvation. It does not teach that at all. It is talking about Hebrew believers that are struggling with fleeing to the mountains. That's what it's about. And they will die physically. It's physical death. Now, that brings you back to who? Lot's wife. So, Hebrews 6, Genesis 19, 17, remember Lot's wife. All will come together, hopefully in a nice, neat package for you as we continue. The Jewish believers that Paul was writing to were struggling with fleeing to the mountains. And Paul knew that Jerusalem was about to be destroyed, and he was urging them to stay put. Don't go back there. And to repeat, this happens again at the time of the Antichrist. Okay? So far, I hope everybody's still with me. I backed the bus up as much as I could. That was that funny beep, beep, beep sound. Now we're about to read Matthew 24, 23 through 44. And list makers going to list. And now this is where the magic rotating, spinning... A holy of old, holy platinum model 
dry erase board will come in handy because what's on the other side of the dry erase board? Ah, oh, yeah, Luke 17, the other list. So I'm going to tell you that we're going to be spinning back and forth looking from list to list. So let's go Matthew 24. We're going to start at 23, verse 23. I've got a reason for that. We'll back up and get the rest of it later. But today we're going to start at 23. Now just try to remember Luke 17 while I read this. Then if anyone says to you, look here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. Does that sound familiar? It should. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So apparently it's not possible, is it? See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Why are they telling you to go out into the desert? Don't do it, he says. Don't believe them. Because they're going to kill you if you go out there. The whole point is to exterminate the Jews. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles, the vultures, will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the man, of, I'm sorry, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Who's the tribes of the earth? Who's mourning? Is that? It's got to be Israel, huh? Zechariah? And all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. But it could be everybody on the earth, right? We'll have to decide that. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds. So the angels will gather together the elect, who is the elect, from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. What's that? What's Christ saying to you? Let me repeat it. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. What is that? Is that a suggestion? It is not a suggestion. Who is he telling it to? His disciples. Why is he telling it? Because he's answering a question. Which question is he answering? Now, learn this parable. So, in order to answer this question, we're going to have to know the parable of the fig tree. Along with what else do you suspect? Remember Lot's wife. Now, learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So, you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. And that's interesting. We have lots of doors, apparently. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will be, I'm sorry, assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But, what's he doing here? Actually, the word isn't just but. If you study a little bit, you'll find that the word is, uh, that the, the Greek that is there is more accurately, but concerning. But concerning of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the hand. So let me repeat that. But concerning of that day and hour, now I'm going to add a word that isn't there to help you. Maybe. But of that day and hour that no one knows, See how I did that? Let's see if I'm right. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in, and for as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until that day, that day that Noah entered the ark. You recognize that wording. That's almost identical, isn't it, to Luke 17? What's missing? Lot and Lot's wife. 
But everything else is very close. And did not know until the flood came away and swept them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also should be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. So, let's just start making the list again, and not any necessarily in, in any order. Lightning flashes. Look here. Look there. Vultures. Or if you prefer, eagles. Noah. Eating. Drinking. Marriage. One taken. One left. Swept away. Watch, therefore, be ready. And I'll just inter- insert right here. Watching and be ready. Readiness is a salvation exhortation. Be saved. And then that's, if I flip this over to the other side, those are the same. Here are some differences. What's missing? Lot. Lot's wife. Prominent in Luke, not at all here in Matthew. Two in a bed. Thief. The ninth step of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. Fig tree. This generation. Run out of space. The trumpet sound. Every tribe will see. All will see. Blackouts. Get to some of this next week, and stars falling. Okay? And that, like I said, may not be in any particular order. Let me um, get only my father knows is the ninth step of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. And so we have, we have things that are the same and things that are different. Let's just go over to Luke really fast. Do I have time? I do. Let's just go really fast through it. Uh, I'll start here in uh, 22. Then he said to the disciples, The day will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes... But first he must suffer many things and be rejected. That's different. And as it was in the day of Noah... They ate, they drank, they married until uh, Noah entered the ark. The flood came and swept them all the way. Likewise, as it was also in the day of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on that day, Lot went out of Sodom. It rained fire and brimstone from heaven 
and swept them all away. So even, even so it will be at the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Then we go into one taken, housetop, remember Lot's wife, grinding together vultures, right? So we have similarities between these two passages, Matthew and Luke, but we have differences. And obviously we're going to have to attend to these uh, distinctions that are here. But as I said, noted or tried to emphasize earlier, Matthew 24, 23 through 44 provides the central piece, the linchpin, if you will, the key to this puzzle uh, that is here. And once you know where the solution is, I have it, uh, actually, I have it circled and highlighted. I know where that linchpin is. When it was first revealed to me and I found somebody that understood it, I didn't come up with the concept, but I realized immediately this is the key to this. But when you see it, once you find it, then Luke 17, 30 through 37 is going to fit. Remember, Lot's wife will finally begin to unfold. Because you see, and I've mentioned it before, Matthew 24, 23 through 44 is divided into two parts. And all you need to know is where is it divided? Where is the dividing point? Christ divides it. Let me read it to you again. I'll start at the end of the first part. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Now he stops and introduces another subject completely. What was he talking about previously? He was talking about his physical return on the Mount of Olives as king of the universe, or of the, uh, that's not the good, of the creation, and the saving of Israel and the beginning of the messianic reign. Now he's going to change subjects. That's the return of Christ. Here comes the new subject. But concerning of that day and hour, no one knows. Now he's no longer talking about the return of Christ, he's talking about a different subject. And the subjects that he's talking about now, the two are related. In other words, the return of Christ is related to the new subject, but it's nevertheless two unique events that occur at specific individual times. It's the issue of the difference between the bride of Christ and the wife of God. So once again, I'm in the distinction between the bride and the wife with respect to the rapture and the return. And what the mistake that is made here is the commingling of these two. They're diverse. They're related, but they're different. I have different entities. Uh, if you commingle them and you think that what he's talking about between 36 and 44 is the same as he talked about between 23 and 35, you've got difficulty. He changes subjects. It'd be like I did this. I talked for 20 minutes about Bill, and then I talked for 25 minutes about Bonnie. Well, if you think that I'm talking about Bill the whole time, Bill comes out really weird. So does Bonnie. Won't work. He's talking about the return as king and the salvation, the saving of his nation, his tribes of Israel. Then he goes to talk about the Hebrew betrothal ceremony, which is clearly about the bride. He says, only the father knows that is a bride reference. And it is the reference when the groom comes for the bride and takes her away. That is the taking of the bride has nothing to do with Israel. And he lays it right there for you. It's, it can't be missed. No one will know the hour. That is a bride reference. So we know we're in a, we're in a different subject now. Again, it's not but. It is but concerning. Matthew twenty four thirty six is where the Lord God 
changes subjects. We have to discipline ourselves to maintain that which is Israel and that which is the church and that which is both. There are some verses that are both, but here's a case where what is applicable to the church is not applicable to Israel. That is specifically the ninth step. That's why he changes subjects and says, but concerning that day and hour of which no one knows but my Father only. Clearly, that can only be for the bride. Because wives aren't taken. Only brides are taken. Without controversy, I have to repeat this. This is the ninth step of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. Christ can't be more clear about it. As you know, when he comes, every tribe sees him. If you want to make that the entire world, we'll discuss it next week. Everybody sees him return. That case can be strongly made. The second part, he's talking about what? No one sees him. No one knows. Everyone knows. No one knows. Two distinct events. That helps you solve Lot's wife. Does that make sense? By the way, Jesus is not saying that he does not know the hour. Please. Stop it. My goodness. Uh, I have, as you know, grandchildren. And the sign for grandfather is where you pound yourself in the forehead like this. Right? That's what you do, and you do something like that. That means grandfather. I know, I use it on them all the time, and they know immediately who I am. So I know it has something to do with signing time. How much, how much have I had to watch signing time? Way too much. I know the songs. I don't like the woman anymore. She's perfectly nice. That's grandfather. Stop thinking that Christ does not know the hour. He is telling you it is on the 12-step pattern. This is the ninth step. When you see the ninth step, you know something important. He is always omniscient. God, he's the creator of time. He knows what time it is. Stop it with the usual nonsense about this verse. He's answering question number two. He's doing it last. The answer to question number two contains the sign of the taken bride. A characteristic of the sign of the taken bride is the ninth step of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. So what's the question now? If Matthew is separated into two pieces, if Matthew 24:36 is the separation point, from Matthew 24, 23 through 44. And the separation is the return for Israel and the taking of his bride. The change of subjects is that pronounced. What then is the most obvious of the obvious questions? Is there a corresponding separation in Luke 17? Well, let's go look. I'm going to tell you there is. There is a separation point. So what's the next most obvious of the obvious questions? If there is a separation point, where is it? Where in that passage does he separate one subject from another? I am going to tell you that I think it is Luke 17:32. I'll read it for you. Remember Lot's wife. I think that's in the separation point. And next week, I will make the case. Why am I quitting early? We have brisket and hot dogs because it's Father's Day.